Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Uh, today we're doing something a little bit different. We're just going to be talking about what it's like to be a brand new DM. Uh, today we're talking to Isla Collins. Uh, Isla, tell us a bit about yourself, like how long you've been DMing, how long have you been playing D&D and all that sort of stuff. Hi, uh, great to be here. I am uh, definitely a new DM. I've been, DMs, I've been DMing since about November, I think, something like that. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And a lot of challenges. <laughs> yeah, I, I've i only been DMing for about a year now. And like, especially compared with some of the people we've had on so far, we've been, I've been DMing for a decade or almost two <laughs> decades. It's like, oh my God. And yeah, I knew it would be fun. But some of the challenges that you run into when you first start out, you're like, oh, this is a thing that I have to deal with. Okay, okay <laughs> sure. I, uh, my first run DMing was for like about an eight month period of time, which is... Way shorter than I wanted the campaign to be, but way longer than anyone thought I was going to run for. And it was hard. My group was really experienced, too. So it's like Ooh, that's tough. three or four people who have experience being DMs, and they're all just like, don't like the way you're doing things. That's you got to be respectful. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they would be. It would be outside, and like when I would go to them actively for advice, but it's just... It's hard when it's experienced players, especially. Yeah, yeah. I think I lucked out, because all of the players that I've had... Except for some of the like small little, hey, let's try out this beginner's thing for Star Wars or whatever. Like Pretty much everybody has been, this is my second game ever, and my first game was two sessions. <laughs> yeah. That's been pretty much the same with my group. We're pretty much all new, or new-ish, or have done like one or two games. Uh, and it's made it so much better. It's like a real relief of pressure not to have people like, um, actually, you'll find on page 46, it says not that. Yeah, it's it has made it a little bit easier for me to be able to just hand wave a rule like if i misremember something or a player misremember something it's a lot easier i find because they're new and they've been playing with me for about a year now that they trust me when i just say i'm just gonna say this for now mm -hmm. when it's not your turn during combat go look this up totally and i think that's one thing that i am thankful for and i don't know if this is just the people i'm playing with or the fact that they're all newer is that there are a lot less rules shenanigans i was gonna say i think it really depends on the group and kind of the dynamic that you set up and i know for my group we wanted something that was just kind of fun and it wasn't super heavy rules focused and you know every tiny little thing being kind of nitpicked and kept completely on uh and it's it just makes it a lot easier and a lot less stressful especially as a new dm not having to have the whole dmg memorized <laughs> I want to make clear that my, my group was really good and they were really, they're all really good players, but it was just, it was stressful. I was also finishing up school at the time, which was probably a bad idea. <laughs> um, anyway. So going off that memorizing the whole DMG, what are some of the things that you have found to be important as a new DM? I think the thing I liked most in the DMG is the part where it says have fun. <laughs> and honestly, I found that to be absolutely the most important thing. It's amazing how if you've, if you've never DM'd before and you're listening to this, it's very stressful when you first start and you're trying to plan your campaign and you're trying to make a story happen and you're trying to remember all the rules and actually get through the whole DMG, which I still haven't 
I'll put my hands up and say that. I have not done that yet. Neither have I. I've, <laughs> I've flipped through it and then immediately forgot half of it. Right? Um, and, yeah, and, and, like, as a new DM, like, I remember this was the second session I ran. Like, the first session was in the campaign that I'm still running. They, the first session was like, hey, let's just start off with combat because, you you know, the fun part of D&D, at least, is the combat. And just get everybody used depending to the, on your group. depending on your group, <laughs> get everybody used to the rules and do a little bit of light role playing and just have some fun with it. And then the next session, it's like, okay, and now you're on the road heading somewhere, and I'm going to do an interlude in this small town and learned very quickly that my role playing skills needed still needed a lot of work, <laughs> and I just very quickly was just like sweating and just like, no, okay, <laughs> tossing all of this out. <laughs> so for me, when I I started kind of getting much more intensively into D and D. Uh, It was about, I think it was almost a year ago now, and I kind of launched into it by starting to watch Critical Role. And, well, I've been either working from home or unemployed for the past, like, nine, ten months now. So I've had a lot of time to watch it. (laughs) I am not caught up on it, but I have watched a lot of it. And I love the show. My only problem is that three, four-hour episodes when you've been at work all day and want to just watch something short... I will say that having that be kind of my introduction to like really role play heavy is intimidating as all mm-hmm. hell. Like, but I've also found it very inspiring. Cause it is, like, yeah. For me, like, I did a bunch of acting when I was a kid, but not since then. And so getting started into it and you're trying to remember everything and you're trying to remember like how to play the game and your story. And then also like, oh, right, should this character have a voice? Like how... Who is this person that I'm writing? And reading some of Matt Mercer's tips about like giving them... I think what he said is he uh, writes down the thing that they most want and the thing they're most afraid of. And that was just revolutionary for me in being able to be like, okay, well, if this character most wants to find a cure for their mother, then that's the driving force behind them and then leads into weird voices and all kinds of fun things. (laughs) Yeah, I think probably one of my more important first lessons was don't worry about voices and making the characters memorable. Make it so that the players are having fun interacting with that NPC. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they're memorable if they're on the road and this is a village they're stopping in because they're never going to see this person again. Totally. But as long as everybody at the table is having fun and like you're not sitting there doing a soliloquy as this NPC, then it's fine. I, I have to say one of the funniest things I think I've learned from being a DM is that, and this is true for every aspect, but particularly with that NPCs, um, you can never predict what your players are going to do or like. Uh, I've created some NPCs that I intended to be so likable and like, you know, the, the friendly, helping helping hand kind of, let me show you the way kind of characters. And my, my gang's just been like, no. Oh my God, I hate that person. See, they're so rude. Oh my God, can you imagine? Okay, I'm leaving. I don't want to talk to them. Like, oh, okay, sure. I guess I will change that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably one of the other things that I learned was being ready to throw stuff out. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes your players just decide, like, no, we don't want to talk to that person. We don't like them. It's like, but you, but we, you talked to them for an hour last session. 
what is going on? The uh, the queen in my uh, campaign, I had originally intended to be very likable and like everyone loves her. She's a real like benevolent kind of queen. And then my party met her and they were all immediately like, no, I don't like her. It's suspicious that everyone likes her. There's got to be something wrong. And so, but it's, it's like, that's the collaborative part of the game. So that now her whole character has changed and it's, it's super interesting to play that uh, and feel through that. My latest, the latest session we had, I had a whole, whole story all set up for them to play through. And like, like it was nice, it was simple, it was fun. I'm not going to say what it was because I'm still going to use it somehow. <laughs> uh, and then they decided to go and speak to the ruler of the town, who was deliberately an asshole. Like that was the point of the character was that they were a jerk. And, but they decided to throw acid in her face. And then they had to leave the town because they got arrested and then escaped. And everything just got very turned upside down. And I just had to abandon that whole story. <laughs> In, I want to say my third session running, one of my players made friends with this NPC and decided that they were going to start a letter correspondence. Um, which was very nice, except I am not very good at actually physical writing, or at least uh, <laughs> that's not essay. Like, I can plan all the stuff really well, but when I'm actually writing it, it's not good. I was very lucky, um, our friend Ray was originally co-DMing the game with me, and he was like, I'll just step in and write these letters for you. I'm like, perfect. good, yes, do that. <laughs> and I, th that's another thing that I, I found, actually, with the group, and this was one of the big benefits of having a group of experienced DMs, is that you, if you didn't think you had time to do something, or couldn't didn't quite have a handle on an npc i could often lean on one of the other ones to be like hey can you play this character writing letters to this other character or can you uh like i got ray to plan a character a whole character's funeral service <laughs> because i was like i can think of the setting i can think of where it is i can think of who the characters are but i can't picture the scene in my head and it was for one of it was actually for my wife's character who had, i'd accidentally killed Oops. um <laughs> And so, like, I needed someone else to do that, and he wrote this beautiful... But it was just, it was really great, and that's kind of one of those benefits I've found with having more experienced teams at the table, is they can occasionally be difficult because they know everything and often <laughs> know it better than I do, because they've also all been playing way longer than I have. But they also can sometimes help you with stuff like that. And I, I think that's true even for less experienced players. Um, I know I, I've started leaning on my players a little bit more for that, Um even in terms of like combat and stuff like that, that I think as D as a new DM particularly, it's really easy to feel like you have to do everything and you have to know everything and absolutely cover all of the bases all of the time. But even in combat encounters, being able to say, okay, so you hit that, you know, that you hit that goblin for 10 damage, what do you do? And we, we've adopted one of the, again, one of Matt Mercer's things of saying, how do you want to do this when they slaughter a big bad? And it's it's great. Like, you know, my players love being able to really get into that. And and I think that's that's the thing is D&D is collaborative and it's something that everyone wants to take part in in their own way. And, you know, maybe they're not, they're not in love with talking about combat or playing combat, but then they really want to step up and have that big, long conversation with that useful NPC. Yeah, that's actually, speaking of that like, more collaborative thing, it's something I've heard from a couple of places, is that as a DM, especially in combat, especially in like larger combats, where there are more monsters than players, like it can become very 
disorienting sometimes to be like, okay, this was next and then this thing was going to do this because the players only have to worry about what they're going to do. And one of the things that I've heard that I've been meaning to try and it's a little hard for me to do because I, I kind of like a little having more control than the players over some things, but the idea of giving certain parts of the combat to other players, like you're going to be in charge of the initiative order. You're going to keep track of it, especially if you're doing like popcorn initiative where like every round you re-roll. Oh. Um, and even sometimes giving monsters to the players to be like okay everybody is controlling their player and this you know you give two goblins to one player and a bugbear to another player and so that really the dm is there to just make sure that everything's running smoothly and that's fascinating yeah and it's one of those things where it's like i don't know that i could give up that much control especially especially for like a set piece battle where it's like you've got your big bad npc who's got to be all mean and and get away kind of stuff mm-hmm. and it's like i don't know i mean how that would work that's the time when you run that and maybe they run some of the minions or something like that that's yeah. such an interesting idea though i don't think i could ever give control of the monsters away but i would definitely look into getting them track initiative and damage to the monsters it was a thing that matt colville talked about at one point or another in one of his videos and i was like oh that would be so much less work for me because they can just <laughs> tell me what the total is and we can check the the hit point total and be like yep this is dead or nope, it's bloodied or whatever. Yeah. And, like, I've done the how do you want to do this thing, and I've also tried to get them to describe things that they're doing during combat. One of the things that I like doing is one of my players has just a bunch of hand axes that if he's too far away, he'll just, like, throw all of them. <laughs> and I'll hand over, a, like, a, a marker so he can write down, like, one of them probably fell here, and one of them probably fell here, nice. and this one hit, so it's still in the guy. But, yeah, like, there are times where giving up a little bit of control so that you as the DM don't have as much on your mind can be super useful, but it's also, it can be its own different kind of stress sometimes because you're like, I spent three days prepping this, and I don't <laughs> want to give any of it up. yeah. That's uh, that's a really interesting idea. I I love that idea. And especially the things that I find really hard are dealing with particularly ranged fighters and spellcasters. <laughs> because my like my players, like you say, they only have to deal with themselves. So, you know, if they're a sorcerer and they have their wide range of spells, like, great, that's fine. They can deal with that. But I'm trying to control everyone else on the field. Yeah, my biggest thing with spellcasters is... I use a site called RPG Tinker to generate uh, special NPCs. Like if I want to have a bugbear that's a little bit tougher or has... Because you can use you can tell it to use like different stat lines. Like it, it has some like pre-rolled stats or you can tell it to roll and you can choose hit dice. And there's a couple of... They're not really classes, but you can say like I want a caster and it'll have... It'll generate a list of spells. And the thing that I found is... I've got all the spell cards so that my players don't have to keep flipping through the book or have this like giant sheaf of printouts for all their spells. And for the players, it's great. But as the DM, I don't want to have to like every game or like every few battles be like, okay, give me 10 minutes to go through all of oh these spell God. cards to find the, the spells I need for this battle. So I've just taken to... I'm printing them out, basically. Like, I, I found this place that prints out the spell cards. Smart. And so I can print out just the ones that I need and just have, like, a reference sheet. I, uh, I've started just uh, because, again, because we're all new and we're kind of building the game collaboratively and I'm trying to take on as much feedback as possible from my players. Like, I ask them for feedback as often as they possibly can. Uh, and one of the one of the 
pieces of feedback was that there weren't enough ranged fighters so that my ranged fighters were just peppering the bad guys and not getting hit at all. Um, I obviously then started having some more ranged fighters and some more magic users. And what I've been doing is just picking like three spells from their kind of whole canon because that's enough for now. <laughs> that's actually uh, not doing that and not reading the full spell list is how I killed Haley's character. Oh no. Uh, I was running an Oni and they are like fifth level spellcasters or something like that. The point is, they have Cone of Cold, which, I mean, my players I think were 6th or 7th level, but uh, Cone of Cold does a lot of damage, and if someone is playing a fragile character, say, like a monk, um, and you hit them for enough damage to kill them, you freeze them solid. (laughs) So, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't paid attention to his spell list, and so I was just going through it, and I was like, he casts... Oh yeah, this is an offensive spell. I'll pick this one. <laughs> but it, it's hard sometimes because you don't necessarily want your monsters to pull their punches if you don't have to. So, mm-hmm. and uh, especially in the heat of battle too, like trying to work out if that was a concentration spell you just did last time, and then if you can do this other one. And I've I've gotten pretty good about keeping track of the concentration stuff. Like on on the the sheet that I print out, I'll have circles for like how many spells they're able to cast and, and keeping track of that kind of stuff. But not reading the monster's full ability list and just being like, oh, okay, like this happened to me with a roper in a game where I'm just like, okay, it's got some tentacles. Cool. It can attack <laughs> at this range. And then like like every round I'd read like a couple more sentences of what those <laughs> tentacles did. I'm just like, oh, okay. So the tentacles grow back pretty quickly and they ensnare if they hit. And just it turned like this battle that I thought was just going to be a, cause it was just like a single roper against five PCs. I'm just like, yeah, this is going to be a quick thing before they head over this bridge underground. And it turned into this like knockdown drag out fight where one of my players was seriously considering trying to just push the roper off the edge of a cliff and following it down. If it meant killing this thing. Wow. I had a roper as an NPC once. <laughs> That's awesome. He was a librarian. Cute. Um, but yeah, and like the the thing too about abilities is one thing at least because in the book you have all of it. The spell list ends up being a problem for me because it's just a list of words, mm-hmm. and so my mind will fill in the blanks of what some of the spells are because I'm familiar. But if like especially at the time I hadn't been playing a lot of casters, so I wasn't super familiar with the spell list. You know, I looked at it in Code of Cold. I'm like, oh, it's you know low level cold magic spell. Most <laughs> cold magic is garbage. Which is not untrue, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> not in this case. <laughs> but uh, no, Cone of Cold is like... <laughs> yeah. I've, I've also had kind of a little bit of the opposite thing where I'd cast a spell. I'd use, like an NPC would cast a spell on one of the players. And I'd expect I'm casting a deck save on the barbarian who gets advantage on any deck saves. It's like, this is totally going to be fine. I'm just doing this for flavor so that the NPC can react in a funny way. And then the barbarian fails. It's like... Oh, you're trapped in the resilient sphere for the rest of the battle. Oh, no. I had a, a big boss battle um, where I believe it was a fear effect or something that they all had to run away from. And my poor monk just couldn't couldn't crack the wisdom save for it. And he was outside for, I think, four or five rounds. And it sucked. And at that point, it's, as a DM, you're like, oh, did I fuck up? Like, Yeah, that that's happened to me where like I had... Um, I used a banshee, I think, like something that's able to possess characters and just fight as them. I used it because I thought it'd just be like, oh, whenever they 
they save, they'll be able to kick this thing out of them. And it's like, no, this save is too high like for this character <laughs> to save against. Low level, like CR 3 or 4 or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. It's bugging me. But like they ended up having to like bring this character down to zero to kick it out of the body oh, because no. that was the only thing they had available to them. The The cleric didn't have the spells he needed to be able to kick it out and the guy just couldn't make the save. And it's just like, there's those points in which in a battle where you're just like, I I thought I did everything right. Like mm-hmm. the, the CR, I used Kobold Fight Club. It said that this yeah. was an easy fight. <laughs> totally. Well, that's the thing too is like I find some specific monsters, Banshee's a good example. I think a Banshee's like CR four or five. But, like, I almost killed a party of five, I think, eighth or ninth level characters. No, they must have been closer to eight or seven. But a five, or sorry, six eight-level <laughs> characters with one Banshee by accident. Because <laughs> its its whale has a pretty high DC for such a, such a low CR monster and is absolutely devastating. Well, and you can have the opposite thing happen, too, where, like, my group, they're, uh, I believe they're level six now. Um, and they went up against some Illithid, and I'm like, oh, wow, Illithid, badasses, all that <laughs> waving tentacles, they'll crush him! I didn't actually want to kill my party, just to be clear. But, you know, I wanted them to be afraid and run away, and then they were just like, oh, whatever, slash, slash, and just decimated these Illithid. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of similar in a, a different way. I had, leading up to that Oni fight where I, I killed my wife's character, there were a series of four, I think, encounters... That my party chained into one single encounter and absolutely demolished them. <laughs> like like it was nothing. And I mean, they were mostly like orcs and a couple of war chiefs and some wargs and stuff like that. So it wasn't anything super impressive. But like, what should have been, I think it was four, yeah, four separate kind of sort of difficult encounters became one really easy one i don't know how that happens i'm still trying to figure this out yeah i think it like this is the kind of thing that it depends so like not just on using a tool like kobold fight club where you can be like okay i've got five characters they're all level eight so these monsters here that i've selected is a hard encounter but it depends so heavily on what those level eight characters are because Mm -hmm. if you've got a like I, the barbarian in my party, like he takes half damage from everything because he's a elemental barbarian, and that changes fights so much. Totally. And it 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 depends so much on the characters in the party and the players and how they play them, and it's so wildly variable that yeah, you can end up with a fight that was meant to be they're supposed to just face roll these three encounters and it ends up nearly killing them and then you have the one that's supposed to be really really hard and the player's just like okay that was over in two rounds what's next and that's i mean i think that's part of the just the weird fun of D in general but it's so bizarre it's like these things you you can plan so carefully and i think this has been the biggest lesson i have ever learned from becoming a dm you can plan till the cows come home you can plan 400 hours for one session and the players will always find a way to mess it up <laughs> yeah and, it's, and there's those moments where you're like this is statistically improbable like, this is supposed to be statistically impossible that you just rolled four 20s in a row totally but i think that's half the fun is that uh, for me like the first couple of times they did it i was like well you've wrecked it now i don't know what to do and then you get better at improvising and you get better at having like you know a quick flip two page in the monster manual where you can be like okay fine i don't have anything else planned you come across a um, 
Goblin, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. So for my specific problem, there was actually a reason which I was unaware of. Uh, in the DMG, they have alternate rules for building encounters once you get above five players. The way the math changes, um, and I hadn't read it because it's like buried in a paragraph somewhere mm-hmm. in there. So, and this happened for months. I don't think I realized it until my game ended that I wasn't balancing combats properly and i was making them all i at the end of the day i was just making all of the encounters deadly because if they were too easy the players wouldn't really be having a good time so like then the odd encounter where something was wrong or everybody failed their saves or whatever you know i'd be like oh no gotta dial it back dial it back and i'm like (laughs) now everything's too easy again yeah great (laughs) and i think uh with my with mine because we were all still learning I definitely, I leveled them up too fast because I wasn't uh, calculating XP properly, um, because that can be a little tricky to do in the beginning. Milestone leveling. Yeah, that's also a good way to do it. (laughs) And I was was calculating, like, full XP from each encounter and, like, blah, 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 blah. Ugh. Nightmare. So it was partially that. And then also, like, I got really excited about magic items, and I wanted to give them cool shit. And then suddenly, yeah. like, oh no, you're super overpowered for level fours. <laughs> you're level four with DC 25, or AC 25. Pretty Shit. much. Same problem in my game. Yeah. A lot of the ones I built were not super effective, which kind of <laughs> helped the problem. But it, it's also hard, too, because I built in the ability for them to buy magic items pretty reliably. So and then I would have a, a character who had, like, already 21 ac or 22 ac being like so i want a plus two shield i'd be like they don't have that because (laughs) i can never hit your character which i feel like takes the fun away from the other players a bit if you're just always invulnerable forever well and that's the that's the the hardest part i think initially is trying to um balance encounters so that your squishy players are still having fun and not just instantly dying, but your super tough players are also having fun and not just murdering everything in one hit. Yeah. I, th- I think that's something that I lucked out with with my new players was that one like one of them is playing a ranger. They, there are some like squishier players, but they within a few sessions were like, okay, I can't be close to the big things. I have to be way over there, and. One of my the ranger in my party, she's got like a sharpshooter feet. She can hit literally well if she rolls. Like <laughs> it's a whole thing. She can never roll well for some reason, and it's 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 alternating hilarious at times. And there was a portion of the game where I'm just like, here's an oath bow, plus three to hit, and you get a whole bunch of extra stuff just because you're going into a dungeon. I don't want you to feel bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are. Yeah, there are so many weird things to D&D with regards to, like, who's in your party, how you're putting together encounters, how the players run their characters. So much weirdness that I think it's always going to surprise me what they come up with and how encounters go. And I'm always going to alternate between, like, yeah, you guys face-rolled that la- that last encounter, so I'm. it's good that you're getting hurt now. Yeah. And, Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> oh, God, the feeling when one of your characters goes unconscious is just... Oh, I feel so bad. Especially when it's like you're both equally responsible for it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, their character rushed in, but then you kind of dogpiled them a bit. And it's like, oh, I am I am sorry. And and trying to be true to the, the monster you're playing, too, I think that's been a really big lesson for me. Uh, the, big, the one big bad that they've faced so far... 
used Finger of Death. Did not kill the character, thankfully. But I was looking at the spell for like a good 45 seconds, just like, that's what the character would do. That's what the villain would do in this situation. I have to do it. It's the, Well, that, that very thing of what the, the, the NPC would do is something... Um... Matt Colville is something I'm a big fan of, and so great. in one of his videos he talks about how like he was playing in the game and his buddy's character died because the DM was just like, the earth elemental steps on your head. And there are times when it's just like, I'm sorry, but I can't pull punches because like we are playing a game where your character can die. Mm-hmm. And for your decision to run into combat to have any meaning, then death has to be a possibility. And we talked about it on... It's the episode that like just launched third this episode. third episode. It, as of when we're recording, it launched on Monday, and yeah, there are times where you just have to be like, "I'm I'm sorry, your character made a foolish decision, and these are the consequences." Mm-hmm. And I feel bad, and we both feel bad, but we all got here together. <laughs> it's one of the the worst feelings I've had as a DM was setting up kind of a. Like, it was just to play and to try something different. I set uh, my characters up in a 10-foot-wide corridor um, with a villain in front of them. And um, there are six, I think, six characters in the party. So there's a lot of them. And they're all piled into this corridor that's so tight that they can't actually really move past each other. And it got very messy and there was a lot of frustration and... I just, I felt terrible about it. I mean, we, we resolved it all afterwards and it was totally fine. But it's things like that where, like, you want to try something different, but you don't want to make everyone sad. <laughs> well, and like that specific example is corridor fights become really common when you're running like actual, like, underground dungeons or mm-hmm. caves or whatever. So, like, you have to try them out sometimes. Any Everyone's going to get to one at one other, one point or another because the alternative is like you have a bunch of fights in open spaces all the time, but that also gets really boring. Yeah. So like you have to change it up, and that means you have to try different setups and stuff like that, like having enemy archers on the balcony, which can be great, but also frustrating if like nobody can land a hit and the archers Mm -hmm. have cover and all that. But like it's, yeah, sometimes you have bad fights too, right? It's like, I think we should move on to a more positive note. (laughs) Yeah, we've been tangenting for a while now. (laughs) What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a lot of great stuff. It's just, we also have other things we'd like to ask you. <laughs> I'm ready. I think I'm going to ask something not from the list. Okay, um, go for it. But I'm not prepared. Well, we've been, we've been talking about kind of all these, like, frustrating or difficult experiences. What's one of your, like, what was one of the most satisfying things you've done as a DM? Encounters or whatever. That's such a good question. Um, I think it's probably... An encounter that we had recently that was inspired by my favorite podcast, The Adventure Zone. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which I saw you Shout tweeted out. about today, and I had to listen to the episode. I had to make sure I listened before I came here, just in case. Shout out to Taz. That show is amazing. It is the best. Yes. The best. Griffin is literally the best storyteller I have encountered, and how dare he make me cry so much. It's not <laughs> fair. <laughs> all, all of them are great, and yeah. Anyways, continue. Yeah. Um, so there was an encounter inspired by that. Um, I introduced a couple of uh, NPCs that the party stumbled across as they were fighting a treant, whose name was obviously Trent. Um, <laughs> and uh, my intention had been that one of the NPCs would die, and uh, it would then give them an excuse to escort this other NPC to the town that they were all heading to. And 
like that was what I had planned. So of course it didn't happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> the the NPC did end up dying, but they were immediately they started talking to the to the guy and he was really distressed because obviously his bodyguard had just died. Uh, and the group was like, oh, well, that's fine. We'll just sling him over our shoulder. We'll go find a cleric in town, see what we can do. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, great. So we had this wonderful session where they all took this guy to the temple and um, we got to do our first resurrection ceremony, which was just like so much fun and like a really just had the most kind of reverential experience for this character that they hadn't even spoken to. And yeah. had no idea. One of them bluffed that she was his best friend, which was my favorite part, probably. Um, and half the group helped with the resurrection ceremony, and the other half went and got brunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I saw the tweets about that. <laughs> I, like, I, I know a couple of your players personally, and I also follow, I think, mo- at this point, most of them on Twitter. So I see <laughs> when you guys are playing, I'm like, oh, they're playing. Look at these tweets. There's always something great in there. Yep. Endless uh, dragonberry mimosas, I believe, was what they were drinking. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know what's interesting? I don't think I've ever roleplayed through a resurrection ceremony. I, I've been playing for ten years. I don't think it's ever come it's up. so fun. I did, but the problem was, was that I let the players get a resurrection when I shouldn't have. Mm. Because... Because the thing for me, like especially after our third episode about the like impact of death on the players, was that the players hadn't been playing long enough for there to be an impact because this was, I'm going to say the like sixth, like fifth or sixth session. Like they were out of the five players that I had, like four of them were friends and there was like one was my friend. So like they were all still kind of just gelling as people around the table Mm -hmm. and characters in the game. And they hadn't really figured out how everybody related to each other quite yet. So when I, I did the Matt Mercer, like, skill check, like, three skill checks, and then I roll to see if they come so back great. thing. And it's a great mechanic. I love it. But I think I was, I had seen how it could work on Critical Role. So I was like, oh, this is going to be this great moment. And it, I don't know how my players really felt about it. Like, they thought it was cool, but... I felt like it fell flat because yeah. I had seen how impactful that kind of thing could be. Could you actually very quickly explain that to me? Because I'm not familiar. Basi- I don't watch Critical Role. Basically, the idea, the idea behind uh, Matt Mercer's uh, resurrection skill check is that they bring the player to... either Whether it's they bring it to an NPC or one of the players can do the resurrection dealio, the idea is that... The, the ceremony is like they're connected to this player's soul in the afterlife and they have to convince them to come back. And okay. kind of provide some incentive and connection point yeah. for that character. So the, the idea is like one person might say like, I'm going to like reach out to them as like, no, you're, you're my best friend and I still need you here. And like one player in one of the games uh, in, in Matt Mercer in Critical Role, like two of the characters were brother and sister and the brother had died. And it was this impactful thing because like they're voice actors, they're, they're actors. They were able to get into it and like- And this, cry. And crying and like, no, like, no, you're my brother. I still need you here. And then they'd roll like a persuasion roll or something. And Matt, what Matt Mercer is doing is he's keeping track of like the DC starts at- 15 every success the players get like the dc for the players is just like 10 for each of their skill checks if they succeed that 15 like he bumps it down by two for every success they get and bumps it up by one for every failure and then after three player checks 
he rolls against whatever that DC ends up being, and that determines if it succeeds or fails. Okay. But also he will often ask the player uh, who is currently deceased how they feel about the role. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the deaths, he texted the player and was like, what do you think? Like, yeah. is that good enough? Yeah. Um, and, and I like being able to use different skill checks and justify them. So, you know, if you have a bard in the party, they can make a performance check or like and literally anything um, that you can tie it to. Yeah. And it's I, the thing that I found from doing it so early in the campaign with like new people, new characters, all this is that that works way better when you've been playing for a couple of months mm-hmm. yeah. when it's fourth or fifth session uh, i would say even longer because i it's something that my group um we've had a lot of conversations about um again because we're trying to do it as as collaboratively as possible um that we've talked a lot about how to gel the group together more as a team um you know we've been playing for seven eight months by this point but we're still kind of finding i mean in game terms that's only like three weeks right so realistically these characters don't have a whole lot of incentive to stick with each other to support each other to act like a team so that's something that we're really trying to to push with um and one of the ways that we've done that is actually inspired by um something that a friend of mine does uh talking about bonds so the at the end of each session i'll get my players to write down uh, a bond that they feel was formed between them and a different character in that session and at the beginning of the next session we'll talk about that um, and write it down, uh, and I provide them with that information so that they can see, oh, right, okay, yeah, I remember this now. I have X number of trust points, basically. Um, and it's, I think it's really helping, so far at least, to gel the group better. I think I'm going to immediately start implementing yeah. that when I start rolling. One of the one of the problems I've always found, and me, me and my friends all kind of lament it, because we're all friends, we've all known each other and been playing with each other for a long time, but... Everyone comes into the game usually wanting to be the most badass person there. That's kind of always <laughs> the thing. And so, you know, if someone's detached or from the group or whatever, or is playing that kind of character and is like, oh, well, I don't care about you. And then you just sit there and you're like, yesterday I, like, I saved your life five times. What do you mean you don't care about me? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I was really glad that I tried to do a session zero. I kind of flubbed it a little bit, but I was able to set up the... Everybody is creating a character who is part of this mercenary group. And you are all part of the same fire team, basically. Like, you have been working together for at least a year. So what was interesting that came out of, out of that was that I asked for, like, I'd like backstories. Like, all I need is just a couple of sentences. And from two players, I got, like, a whole page. And it was I kind of it. wonderful. And it. the thing that I, I thought was interesting that I... This is the reason I really, really wish that we had all been able to sit down around a table and do it was that one of the players was like, oh, yeah, me, like, because it was him and his girlfriend, they had done this together. And he's like, oh, yeah, I met this character because we saved him from, like, gladiator pits. And it's just like, and or that character, I can't remember what it was, but but that idea of just like, yeah, that's how you tie people together is by, like, getting everybody to sit down and create characters together. Yeah, and that's something I wish that we had done we didn't do a session zero, which I definitely have regrets about. I think it would have really helped us all gel together in it, straight off the bat. I have some wonderful backstories from every single one of my characters. Everyone put a lot of energy and thought into them, which is wonderful. It's just then we need to have stories together. <laughs> but speaking of things that went really well, the last session I ran went amazingly because I cribbed from... Matt Mercer, Matt Colville from WebDM, from like AngerGM, from a bunch of different sources. And 
it was nice because I was able to put together something where like a character character's like dead brother was brought back to life <laughs> as a revenant and like he ended up having to fight him and like I was able to just pull together like a whole bunch of storytelling stuff, a really awesome combat, and a character who was only in town for like that session because he's up north somewhere That's was nice. able to just like bust onto the scene and like it just all came together so well and I was really happy with it. And that's one something I'm really looking forward to. Now that my players are starting to get more of a team dynamic going, I want to be able to start pulling out those little backstory pieces and uh, I have some really interesting ideas about it, but it'll be kind of working those in and and I want to take inspiration from um, people like Griffin McElroy who are so incredibly adept at putting these little threads in uh, all the way through the story in a way that you don't really realize anything is happening until that big reveal. And I hadn't realized how difficult that was until I started trying to do it. <laughs> like, I, from ta- listening to Griffin talk and reading a couple of interviews on the subject, I know it's already difficult for him, but he also has the benefit of his brothers and his dad are all there to be like, we're making a show, so we're we're always going to be yes-anding. And like, no matter how lovely your players are, there's always times when they're, you know, maybe they're having a bad day or whatever, where they're just, they just don't do it. And that's, that's fine. But it, it makes it more difficult to keep mm-hmm. those threads going. Especially yeah. in a game where the, the adventure zone is a little bit more on rails mm-hmm. and compared to something like Critical Role or just like games that we run where you can put threads in front of your players. And this is especially we, one of the episodes that we haven't launched yet is about like, campaign scope and campaign scale like keeping like instead of building an entire world have just a small region so that it is easier like if you put out some threads like you don't have to remind players oh back in in this city that you were in four Mm -hmm. sessions ago there's some stuff that you wanted to do and that i want you to do and then in this other city there's some stuff that i want you to do you don't have to worry about continually trying to throw hooks at them you can just be like no these are all always going to be sitting in front of you. I had a great chat with um, a friend of one of my players when I was about to start. Uh, she got us together because we're both DMs and um, I wanted to pick his brain over all of my new DM questions. And uh, we were talking about the com- campaign that he runs and it's in a city. That's it. It's like the scope of it is one city. And by that point, I'd already watched a lot of Critical Role and was like, oh great, okay, I have to create this huge, enormous world. It's like, you know, sprawling size of Cyrodiil, like no big deal, totally fine. Uh, and that that definitely changed my perspective a little bit. Um, I think one of the, not necessarily mistakes I made, but certainly one of my less favorite things that I've done was definitely creating too big a scope to start with um, and spending too much time rolling around in this giant world and now we're kind of narrowing it a little bit and i think it also helps we've been playing for a while so people know the city is a bit better now as well yeah if i was going to start this campaign over again there would be a bunch of changes that i'd make and one of them would be that there would be the major city that most of the stuff happens in and like a small region around it like i don't regret the fact that i created like i've got an entire world i've got continents and i've got like a world history in my head and i created two major religions and like all of this stuff and it's fine but it also means that when the players want to like trapeze across the continent that i have to suddenly spend a lot more time planning Mm -hmm. what's in this area instead of like no now like we we talked about this in our 
scope episode, but just instead of being able to drill down into like this is this market, I can make it even better. I have to now go over to this other city and figure out a couple of NPCs there totally. and what is this town like and blah. Yeah, and we've been playing, like I said, for I think seven, eight months now and we've been spending all of our time in this one province and that's where all the action has been happening. Uh, there are three other provinces that I've created and just, I don't know when we're going to get there. But the backstories from, from my characters, like every character is from a different province. So at some point we will definitely explore those. The great thing about that too, and like that the one upside of creating a big world and then not running all of it is you have all, you end up having unused content, which is really easy to recycle that said, like, the best game I ever played in was entirely in a small county with two towns, or, sorry, three towns. And, like, there was a vague sense of the world outside, but part of the, it was a farm boy game, so part of the idea of, of it is that, like, the world outside wasn't that important to us. Like, the king had a name, and we <laughs> all knew it, but, like, the players didn't know it because it wasn't really an important detail, so why would the DM spend time developing that when he doesn't need it but it also allowed us to like really feel like we were from this town or part of this town or knew the neighboring town or knew the Mm -hmm. local lore or alternatively when forces came in from outside or people came in from outside being like really enforced the like what are you doing here right yeah and so kind of veering off of this like the whole idea of like building worlds or knowing to keep it contained is definitely a skill that i need to work on and that kind of planning stuff are there any things that you've figured out about dming that you're like this is a skill i need to get better at because i've i've got basically everything that i've done so far something i need to get better at (laughs) yeah yeah that's kind of how i feel too uh i think it because it's such a different experience than anything else you can do in life it feels like everything is is a new fun challenge. I think there are nuances that get easier, um, particularly in terms of um, story. And something I'm trying to work on right now is creating more of an overarching story, kind of Griffin style, to have like a good overarching plot, but allow there to be a lot of room for play within that. Because something I know I was initially doing was... I was worried that my players were going to get bored with the kind of small stuff that, you know, small encounters on the road or whatever, because my party isn't super into combat. So I was racing through the story and they, you know, they met the first big bad, like, I don't know, a couple of months into the game. And they were just like, after the, the big fight, they were like, oh, that was really surprising that we met him so quickly. That's really, and in my game, uh, I'm running a feminist world. So the bad, the big bad is essentially the patriarchy, uh, which is so fun. Um, the exact kind of escapism that you want from a game like D&D. Yeah, it was a lot funnier before Trump got in, but... We all has a sad now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's that's one thing that I would, uh, that I want to get better at for sure is pacing and being able to give my players room to play around and that was something we discussed in terms of helping them getting to know each other better as player characters is giving them room to talk. So when they're on the road, instead of just being like, okay, great. Well, I don't have a combat encounter plan because you, you guys don't really love those. You fast travel instead. It's like, okay, so you're on the road. You're going to be walking for five hours. What do you talk about? Yeah. That's something that I've, 
I need to write it down on like a big piece of paper <laughs> and just have that be my GM screen is what do they talk about while they're traveling or like not in combat? Because I found that I have been doing a lot of you're at point A, suddenly you're at point B, suddenly you're at point C. Like I'm not giving my players time to just talk. And at this point, like I feel like the, the characters, like the players understand the character relationships, but I feel like that would make it so much better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And a thing that I did that, in, at least in the game I was running, which I had the benefit of people who've been playing for a long, long, long time, but like being able to go like, okay, because I had kind of a mission structure to my game. So they would get back to base, which was a school they were all part of. And I'd be like, okay, you don't have a mission right now. What do you guys get up to? And even if someone was not necessarily interacting with the other characters directly, the other players and characters would kind of hear about or find out or talk to them about later what they did. So they they actually had conversations with each other for sometimes whole sessions, nice. which was great because it's like, oh, now I have a buffer and I can build more stuff. Than yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's nice. It's definitely taken my planning time down a lot. Because previously it was like I was planning for hours and hours and having these gargantuan plot things happening, but it was just moving too quickly and there wasn't enough time to build those relationships and get those connections happening. I actually have a piece of advice for you both on overarching plot stuff. Yes. Uh, I had a plot accidentally thrust upon me uh, by, <laughs> you know, killing Haley's character. Um, but one of the, the best things I did is I was planning it and I couldn't. I wasn't happy with what the end fight looked like. I needed more time. So what I did is kind of on their way there, I had a massive derailing of the plot, which only works if it makes sense for where the plot's kind of going. Like if there's something about the environment that means like this thing makes sense. Uh, And it was, I think, easily the best piece of content I ran. Um, I basically, they they were traveling along this island chain trying to get to the Oni that had killed Sirma. And I was like, okay... You know, you're on the you're on this boat. You're talking to the crew. Suddenly, like a giant shark comes out of the bottom of it. The ship starts sinking, and so they're in this kind of losing fight, which is specifically built so they would lose it. And you know, in comes this NPC on a dragon and is like, "Okay, you know, I've saved you. I need you to do something for me." <laughs> You know, and then I sent them to this island that the, that particular NPC can go to for whatever reason. And I just built this massive island, separated it into regions, built a bunch of like small tables on a bunch of random encounters, not even necessarily fights. Some of them were just like creatures. And it ended up being the best part of content because they were able to just kind of roll around this area. And the only plot was in the middle of the island, which they had to get to. So depending where they went, they just ran into stuff and you get to run a lot of flavor that way and you also allow depending how you run it you can allow your parent your players to see potential combat and be like no (laughs) (laughs) but anyway sorry the point is is that like if you are finding your plots moving too fast uh either for prep or just for pacing Sometimes throwing in a side episode or even, like, a filler kind of episode of content or several sessions of content or whatever can slow the plot down so it's running at a nice pace again and also have the characters bond over something that's not 
whatever the looming threat is. Totally. The only thing is right now that's kind of tough for me because one of the players right now is in the middle of trying to prove that she wasn't somebody who assassinated a like head merchant of a merchant guild. So yeah. there's a little bit of time crunch on right now. But yeah, like that's something that I, I'd like to get better at. Flipping that around, there are probably things that you realize pretty quickly like this is a thing that i am really good at so i'm going to steer into that what kinds of things are those for you that's a good question i think it's really hard to pinpoint the things you're really good at well for for, <laughs> for example for me it's it's improv improv um being able to come up with stuff just off the top of my head i will say that it is a lot easier in some of the other systems that i've run i am a huge star wars nerd and I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. So playing Star Wars Edge of the Empire and playing Eclipse Phase, which is a transhuman horror game. It's, it's amazing. I will tell you about it after. I am able to just bullshit stuff off the top of my head. And, <laughs> and especially in those systems where it is a lot easier to just... Like in Star Wars, they have these cards that you can just be like, cool, these are the guys in this fight. Like you don't have to do a lot of planning. Gotcha. And uh, same thing with Eclipse Phase, which is entirely... Uh, like a d100 so like 2d10 that's pretty much the only dice you need and it's really easy to come up with npcs on the fly so for me to be able to just kind of bolt like i remember sitting down for a session of eclipse phase and being like oh i have nothing planned and just coming up with a small little like the they had just escaped from something and they were in the sewers i'm like cool sewer map and there's a thing in the sewer and there are traps cool and we spent the entire session just them getting out of the sewer and it worked because I was able, like, the, the system really worked well with that. And I have a little bit of trouble with that in D&D because I feel like, especially for combats, you need to put in a little bit more planning. But they're still, t- they're, depending on their level, if you just want to throw a really, really easy fight, there's the stuff in the appendix of the monster manual. Like, it's a couple of bandits. They're going to be able to do this easy. I don't, I can throw <laughs> two or three. It's fine. But I feel like that's the thing that I'm the best at is just being able to go just, I don't, no, what? Okay, really quickly, just bam, 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 cool, let's go. And I think I would actually agree with that um, with a slightly different bent for me, which I think, again, is probably inspired by Griffin, um, not to sound like his biggest fan, but god damn it, he's amazing. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously. Is that that improv, but kind of the, the riffing off my players um, is something I've got a lot better at now that I... And, and I think initially you know, you're so uptight when you first start DMing and, you know, you have your two pages that you've got planned and you want to go through it, like, line by line. And very quickly you realize that's not how D&D works, um, unless you want to railroad your players and make them sad. You have to keep reminding yourself, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. Totally. And I feel like I've got much better at that now so that, you know, if a player, for example, uh, if your druid tries to charm somebody, gets found out returns and gets arrested you can adapt more quickly to them getting arrested turning into a rat to escape uh and then having to have a chase (laughs) they caught her in a bag she started chewing through the bag and got very messy (laughs) or you know when your ranger who is very easily frustrated by stupid people uh and people who won't just tell her what she needs to know uh, when she decides to throw a vial of acid in the ruler of the town's face while the rat druid is currently trying to escape. And then both of them get arrested and, <laughs> and it turns into a massive shit show. But being able to roll with that and just kind of 
rather than rather than kind of what you're saying about being able to like just pick up random stuff out, out of the air but being able to say like okay you're gonna do that totally utterly unexpected and bizarre thing great awesome what does that look like uh okay well this god is gonna chase you uh let's roll some athletics to see who gets away <laughs> You know, I think that speaks to a really bad habit I, I have sometimes where it's like, I have stopped my players and just been like, are you sure you want to do this thing? <laughs> I think that can be important sometimes, it, though. It can be, but I feel it's like... It's fun if you don't, though. Oh, and I think that is the thing. <laughs> and it depends on the tone of your game and who your players are. But I think sometimes being able to, like, stopping them and being like, are you sure you want to do this thing because it'll get you arrested makes for a less interesting story than them being like, I do this thing, I'm like, okay, they try to arrest you, because of course they do. I had an amazing situation with that. I ran a one-off on Nia's Day, uh, which was still based on these characters in this world, just with a couple of extra players. And I was leading them through this dungeon, and they walk into this dark uh, dining hall, like, beautiful, like, dusty. There are all these skeletons at the table, and at the end there's a large throne and as I'm describing the scene and telling my players what it looks like and really getting into the description, my paladin, who is impulsive to say the least, uh, just reaches over to the map, grabs her token, and just like moves it over to the throne. I was like, really? She's like, uh-huh. Great, all the skeletons come to life. You have a fight now. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of thing, you know, you get... That's, that's yeah, the, the weird improv fun and getting to riff on your players ridiculousnesses yeah especially when you kind of have a feel for how your players will react like there's a couple times now where i've set up situations where like it was actually funny because i was trying in in the last session where the players walk into this giant arena and this character's dead brother is standing there alive next to this dark knight who's been kind of terrorizing them a little bit and I start just poking him. Like, I'm poking the character. Like, because I want him to rush forward because that's what he's been doing. Because I wanted to set off a trap. <laughs> and, like, I wanted to do it because I wanted this other character to come in to his rescue. And he didn't fall for it. And I was just like, the one time. <laughs> that's, that is, as a, as a player, as well as a DM, sometimes my biggest frustration is when players act out of character like to the point where they're like they're doing meta knowledge or whatever in, in this situation i i understood because oh, like yeah. his player like the character was thrown off by it's his dead brother something is up right. yeah well and it's like more like the situation i was in i was a player not damning this particular thing but we had a character in a dream sequence who was like incredibly low wisdom and the play but the player immediately put together he was in a dream sequence and he was like oh yes i'm in a dream sequence and you're like there is no way your character would yeah. know that. <laughs> and I, I think it's important to be able, like, as a DM, to be able to call your players on that stuff gently. Yeah. Because um, we've had it, like, especially at the beginning of, of the game that um, I'm DMing for, there were definitely a couple of occasions where I had to say, like, is that you speaking or is that your character? Like, is that something your character would know? What would they actually do in this situation? It's kind of like one of my favorite tools right now as a DM is the insight check, where either, either it's something where, like, the player's just like, Oh, I don't like give me an insight check because I might be able to give you a hint if you do well. But at the same time, you could also be like, no, before you do that, give me an insight check. You failed. Cool. No, your player doesn't know that or your character doesn't know that. Right. But it, that is definitely like something you have to wield carefully. I, yeah, I want I really want my players to do more insight checks. So if you're listening to this, do more insight checks, please. <laughs> I have so many things 
that I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> but we did that recently. We had uh, uh, an encounter where I wanted them to roll insight checks, and they did, but they failed the insight checks. So, ah, uh, in those situations, like you just have to accept, roll with it. yeah, accept that they're not going to know these things. Nice pun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, I think I think we're running low on time, right? We are at an hour. Yeah, we're Thanks. running out of time. So, um, last question: What do you wish, from what you know now about DMing, that you could tell yourself eight months ago when you started? What piece of advice would you give yourself? <clears throat> Chill the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's basically it. I I think it's really easy to get tied up in knots and feel like you need to know every single tiny thing, and if you don't, you know, doing it right and all of that but my biggest thing has just my, my biggest source of enjoyment in dming has been to relax to be playful to improvise and to just have a good time yeah i think the kind of the same thing for me where it's also a little bit like it is okay to ask your players for like five ten minutes to figure something out totally and it's okay to ask your players if, if they know the rules better than you do sometimes it'll be a house rule and you can say nope i don't like that we're changing it but other times, like, it's fine. All right, Isla. Thank you so much for coming out yeah. and talking to us. Thanks for having me. Um, if the, is there anywhere that people can find you online if they want to? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Isla Collins. That's A-Y-L-A Collins. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can also find me. I play uh, in Zero D20's Fracturia, um, which is uh, an actual play D&D podcast as well. Cool. Thank you so much for coming out. This yeah. was a blast. Yeah. This has been so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Our logo and other artwork is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DMs of Vancouver, all one word. We'd love to hear from you folks about topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Lastly, if you want to help us out, we've got a Patreon account where you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Each little bit helps, and all the money will go to making this podcast as awesome as possible. See you next time, folks. Roll for initiative!